Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And a very good afternoon to everyone. and Welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Mitch Cesarich, host of Letters and Politics on KPFA Radio in Berkeley and throughout the country on Pacifica Radio. And I am very pleased to be your moderator for today's program. We do appreciate you considering a donation to support the Commonwealth Club's work. And if you wish to do so, please click on the blue donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We also want to remind you to submit questions via the chat room next to your screen, and I promise that I'll try to get to as many questions as I possibly can during tonight's program. It is my very good pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Craig Whitlock. Craig Whitlock is an investigative reporter with the Washington Post, and he is also author of the book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Now, we can remember the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan had near unanimous public support at the time. And I do stress the near part because I did work at a radio station that gave ample amount of attention to the critics of the war in Afghanistan and overall the war on terrorism. Still, and I very much well remember this, the vast majority of the people supported the invasion of Afghanistan just a month after the 9-11 attacks. The goal, we were told, was straightforward, defeat al-Qaeda and prevent a repeat of 9-11. But Craig Whitlock says that after the Taliban was ousted from power, U.S. officials lost sight of their original objectives as the military became mired in an unwinnable war in a country that it did not fully understand. Craig Whitlock now brings us the Afghanistan Papers, which, similarly to the Pentagon Papers during the Vietnam War, contained startling revelations from people who played a direct role in the war that the American public was not told the truth about the war itself, from leaders in the White House and Pentagon to soldiers and aid workers on the front lines, many are now candidly admitting that the U.S. government strategies, well, were a mess, that the nation-building project was a colossal failure, and that drugs and corruption gained a stronghold over their allies in, in the Afghanistan's government. Craig Whitlock's account is based on interviews with more than 1,000 people who he says knew that the U.S. government was presenting a distorted and sometimes entirely fabricated version of the facts on the ground, all upheld by presidents and generals who were unwilling to admit failure. We are pleased today to be able to have this discussion with Craig Whitlock about the truth behind America's longest war. Craig Whitlock, welcome. Thanks so much, Mitch. It's a privilege and honor to be here, and thanks to you and the Commonwealth Club for sponsoring it. It's great to have you. Craig, you have been covering the war in Afghanistan since 2001. You were a reporter, a war reporter in Afghanistan. Then later you covered the Pentagon, which also meant that you were covering the war in Afghanistan. Now here we are. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 is just a few days away. And then a month after that, we'll get the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, the war has seemingly come to an end a few weeks ago. With all this in mind, what are you thinking about? What What is first and foremost on your mind these days? Well, personally, it's it's kind of striking, I think, for anybody who's old enough to think that this war, the, the past two decades, have consumed such a large chunk of our lives. And, uh, you know, whether in the forefront or in the background, what's been going on in Afghanistan has has shaped directly or indirectly uh, so much of our government's policies here and abroad. And, you know, it's just sort of sobering to step back and think about what's happened over the last 20 years and still the things that are yet to come. I mean, certainly the U.S. military involvement has ended uh, for the time being. We don't have troops over there. But, of course, Afghanistan uh, is not a stable country, and it still has many of the same problems that existed before we invaded in 2001. Uh, so on both those levels, it's just sort of, uh, you know, hard to believe we've been there for 20 years. But the other big question is, you have to ask, what did we really accomplish uh, after spending this much time in warfare, spending over $2 trillion uh, in U.S. taxpayer money, over 2,400 U.S. troops lost their lives, tens of thousands were wounded, 
And certainly the people who bore the biggest brunt of the war were the Afghan people themselves. There are so many Afghans who have died uh, in the war in the last 20 years that nobody has a really accurate count, but it almost it certainly exceeds 100,000 people. So, I mean, I don't mean to be cynical, but it's hard to not think back and say, you know, what was it, what was all this for? What did we really accomplish? Let me get straight to questions, which is great news. We're already getting listener and viewer questions, and this question was going to be my follow-up one anyways. Uh, and it reads this, today's Taliban claims that they are different than the Taliban of 20 years ago, though that isn't evident. How do you see them? Well, they say that. I, time will tell, but I don't think they're too different. They're a little better at dealing uh, with the media. They're more cognizant of public relations. They're actually pretty skilled in that regard. The last few years, uh, it was actually easier in some regards for journalists to get interviews with the Taliban than with the U.S. military about their operations in Afghanistan. So they're, they're very savvy when it comes to PR. Uh, so th they know the importance of trying to transmit certain messages and perceptions to the world. But, you know, the Taliban this week announced a new acting government for Afghanistan. And, you know, all the people in charge are people who were part of the old guard of the Taliban back in the late 90s. And there's no indication that their ideology has changed. Um, they made clear that they, they're intent on uh, instituting a theocracy in Afghanistan. And, you know, there's really not very much difference that is concrete so far at this point between, you know, how they're going to operate now as opposed to 20 years ago. What are your thoughts about the Taliban's relationship to al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or any of these groups that have been deemed terrorist organizations? Well, these are, of course, the most burning questions for the United States because everybody wants to know, is there going to continue to be a threat to U.S. interests posed by people in Afghanistan? And this is a difficult question to sort out. You know, there's lots of people on different sides of the issue. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the Taliban, even though they hosted al-Qaeda uh, back in the late 90s and 2001, you know, nobody in the Taliban was involved in the September 11th attacks. They were, the hijackings were carried out predominantly by Saudis and, and members of al-Qaeda. Uh, at the same time, there's no question that the Taliban did offer refuge to al-Qaeda and remains very sympathetic to what's left of that network. Um, the more interesting group in a relationship that you mentioned about Islamic State, their uh, affiliate in Afghanistan doesn't get along well with the Taliban at all. They fight all the time. In fact, in recent years, the, the Taliban and the United States have indirectly worked together to take military action against the Islamic State. And the reason for this is the Islamic State, believe it or not, actually thinks the Taliban is too moderate. The Islamic State also has more of a global worldview that they're trying to impose a, a, a theocracy in Islamic State uh, throughout the region, not just Afghanistan. And so this ironically may be an area of cooperation in the years to come between the United States and the Taliban, both at an intelligence level and perhaps military operations against the Islamic State. What do you think is the likelihood that there will be cooperation between the United States and the Taliban going forward and perhaps the potential of even diplomatic relationships with Afghanistan? Well, I, I think, ironically, on counterterrorism, the cooperation has already started. Uh, last month, the CIA director, William Burns, flew into Kabul and met with the Taliban leadership, uh, which is sort of a striking moment when you think about it. So while we were trying to evacuate Americans and Afghan interpreters and other people who helped the United States during the war, the CIA director is having a sit-down meeting with some of the top leaders of the Taliban. And, you know, certainly, almost certainly, they were discussing things like what can we do about Islamic State or how can they work together uh, behind the scenes on that regard. Uh, but the other question you bring up of diplomacy, that's going to be a much tougher issue, and we'll have to see what happens there. Certainly, the Taliban would like nothing more than to have diplomatic recognition from the United States and uh, other Europe, you know, European countries, wealthy donors to Afghanistan because they want the legitimacy and they want a lot of humanitarian aid to flow into the country. Uh, the United States has made clear, the Biden administration, that they don't plan on doing that anytime soon. That's perhaps the most leverage they have over the Taliban at this point is holding that carrot out in hopes of gaining some cooperation uh, with perhaps diplomatic recognition 
down the road, but I think that's that's a ways off. I want to go back to something that you said earlier, basically our misunderstanding of the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. That's kind of fundamental. It gets at the, the one of the fundam- fundamental aspects of what your book, The Pentagon Papers, is about, is our, our, our inability to understand actually how things work there. Yeah, this, this was a fundamental error that we made after September 11th is we lumped the Taliban and al-Qaeda in the same basket uh, as terrorists. And people in the Bush administration would call them that. They, they'd say they were all terrorists. And, you know, certainly I'm not trying to defend the Taliban. You know, their tactics are very brutal, but, you know, their ideologies and goals were very different. And what we fail to really understand is al-Qaeda is a group of foreign fighters that happened to use Afghanistan as a base. But their objectives were to carry out operations outside Afghanistan and use that country as sort of a refuge, whereas the Taliban is made up primarily of Afghans, as well as some Pashtuns from next door in Pakistan, but their their goals were local. And, but by lumping them all together, what we did is, yes, we, we had great success against Al-Qaeda in terms of capturing, killing, uh, and, and deterring its leadership after September 11th, but this idea we had, the Bush administration, that it could vanquish the Taliban was was a, a great mistake because the Taliban were really woven into the fabric of Afghan society. Uh, they maintained some significant support in the rural areas. And the idea that we could just eliminate them for good uh, just wasn't realistic. And we failed at early opportunities to try and bring them into the political system. Uh, former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld during the Bush administration you know, very loudly in public said the Taliban had two choices. They could surrender or die, even though some Taliban leaders at that point were sending out feelers that they wanted to see if there was a way for them to be included in the Afghan political system. You say some Taliban leaders, and you're talking about previous years, but what does that mean now? Is is there one Taliban? Are, are there different portions of Taliban, the Taliban, depending where you are in the country? There's many different factions, Mitch, and this is something again gets back to, uh, you know, the United States has never really understood the enemy in this regard, and Taliban became a, a catch-all term for anybody who is shooting at U.S. troops or carrying out operations. So anybody who is opposed to the U.S. government, or excuse me, the U.S. government or the Afghan government, we kind of labeled Taliban or Al Qaeda without really bothering to distinguish between different factions with different motivations. You know, the Taliban, the best way to describe it is a movement. They have different factions that hold different amounts of sway. There's the Haqqani network that some people have heard on that's based in one part of Afghanistan. You have a group called the Quetta Shura that was based in uh, Quetta, which is a large city in Pakistan. Uh, And you have other factions, too. So it's more of a coalition in some regards of insurgents that have come and cause ideologically uh, perhaps some different goals, but they, they were all intent on driving out the U.S. military and trying to topple and defeat the Afghan government that we had put in place. That's interesting and important. Craig Whitlock, your book, which was published last week, The Pentagon Papers. Of course, when we hear that, we immediately think, uh, I'm sorry, I called it The Pentagon Papers, which was part of my question. Your book's called The Afghanistan Papers, which makes us think of the Pentagon Papers, these documents that were released by Daniel Ellsberg in the 1970s. Um, compare and contrast in, in helping us understand what the Afghanistan Papers were about. Compare what you got to what Daniel Ellsberg had. Yeah, so it's a good question, and it's important, I think, to draw clear lines here. So there's some real similarities and some real differences. The similarities is at their core, both the Afghanistan papers and the Pentagon papers were essentially secret or confidential government reports that showed that uh, the people in charge of the war in Vietnam or the war in Afghanistan uh, weren't being straight with the American public about how the war was going, what was going on, that they deliberately suppressed bad news for years and years and that they intentionally deceived the American people about how things were going. Uh, Now, that said, there's some some real differences. The Pentagon Papers were top secret. They were entirely classified. That was a a study, a history of the war in Vietnam that was commissioned by then Defense Secretary uh, uh, Robert McNamara. 
And he was so concerned, ironically, about it leaking out that he ordered the people behind the Pentagon Papers not to interview anybody, that they had to base their entire study on internal documents like intelligence reports and, and military assessments and diplomatic cables, things like that. So it was a very long, very document-based study, but nobody was interviewed. Uh, and of course, Daniel Ellsberg leaked it anyway to the New York Times and the Washington Post and other news organizations. Now, the Afghanistan papers were interviews. These were only interviews at first that were conducted by a federal agency that's not well known. It's called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan. And this agency's job is to investigate claims of fraud, waste, and abuse and all the spending in the war zone. But they did a side project starting in 2015 called Lessons Learned where they wanted to assess mistakes made in Afghanistan so we didn't you know, commit them again in a future conflict. And the inspector general staff interviewed more than 400 people who had played in the war, played a role in the war from the Bush years, Obama years, and, and the start of the Trump years. Uh, and the difference is these notes and transcripts of these interviews are very uh, unvarnished. These are people admitting in the most blunt in frank terms, all the things that got screwed up during the war. So there's a lot of human voice in these documents. And that's what the Washington Post had to go to court using the Freedom of Information Act to obtain all this information. This was not classified information, unlike the Pentagon Papers, but the government didn't want to release it. And the Post had to go to court twice to sue to force the government to release it. So in a, in a nutshell, those are some of the similarities and differences. You first started reporting on this story in 2019 in the Washington Post. Well, that's when we first started publishing some articles about it. But actually, I started reporting on it in 2016 during the tail end of the Obama administration when I caught wind of, of this project called Lessons Learned that the inspector general was doing. And I just made a simple request at first to see some of these interviews. And at first, the inspector general said, sure, why not? It's probably public information. But uh, then they got cold feet. And long story short, it took the Washington Post three years in court to obtain these documents. Then we did publish uh, initial revelations from this in a series we published in December 2019. Uh, I used those documents as the basis for the book, The Afghanistan Papers, but I also managed to obtain a lot of other documentation. Uh, more than a thousand oral history interviews with U.S. military officers and diplomats and senior members of the Bush administration, and also hundreds of memos that uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the former defense secretary, had dictated over the years about Afghanistan. Those memos are known as snowflakes because Rumsfeld wrote and dictated so many of them that they would fall down from the sky on everybody's desk at the Pentagon. And some of those snowflakes are quite revealing, even about Donald Rumsfeld's own feelings about the war in Afghanistan. They really are. I mean, for government memos, they're they're extraordinary because Rumsfeld, for one, I mean, he had a public reputation for speaking directly and bluntly, but uh, he would say one thing in public and then in private in these memos, he'd say something completely different. Uh, I'll give one example. There was in six months into the war, in April of 2002, President Bush gave a speech at the Virginia Military Institute where he, you know, everybody thought at that point the Taliban was gone, the war had been won, and that, but there was concern that the U.S. might get bogged down in Afghanistan like we did in Vietnam or like the Russians and British had done in Afghanistan years before. And Bush in public was saying, no, no, we've got this taken care of. We've learned our lessons. We're not going to get mired in, in Afghanistan. We'll get out. Uh, on that very same day, Rumsfeld wrote a memo, one of his snowflakes, to several of his top generals at the Pentagon and said, uh, I'm really worried that if we don't come up with a plan to stabilize Afghanistan, we'll never get U.S. troops out. And he ended the memo with one word. It said, help, exclamation point. So again, here you have Bush in public saying, don't worry, everything's fine. We're not going to get stuck in Afghanistan. The same day, Rumsfeld's writing a memo to top people at the Pentagon saying, help, that he's worried about exactly that scenario. And you see this play out time and again with his memos over the years, where you know his, his real fears he articulates in these memos, and yet in public, they're trying to reassure everybody that things are fine. Is there a strategy that you found to keep the public 
from knowing about these concerns concerning the war in Afghanistan? Well, there was, and it sort of developed over time. I think at first, uh, during the Bush administration in particular, there was this, you know, not to be cynical, but this habit of not telling the truth about things, that wanting to, uh, you know, give a lot of rosy or happy talk to the public to downplay setbacks. Uh, but over time, as the war started to kind of slip from, from the United States grasp, that deception and misleading behavior and spin in public became more pronounced. And so then over time, it, it became worse. So when there were specific events, they would often, you know, frankly, lie in public about it. But over time, both during the Bush administration and Obama administration, uh, there was a deliberate attempt to not level with the American people about how badly things were going. I'll, I'll give you an example of another document we obtained, a lessons learned interview with a, a senior White House official who worked during the Obama administration on the National Security Council. Uh, the government redacted this official's name, but we have the document of the interview. And this person said that, you know, they tried to manipulate the metrics for the duration of the war uh, for public perceptions. And what he was talking about were all these statistics that the government would rattle off about to show progress, like the number of schools built in Afghanistan, the number of highways paved, uh, the number of hospitals built, you know, the literacy rates going up. He said all these statistics that were intentionally manipulated so that no matter what the reality was, they wanted to present a picture to the American public that the war was on the right track, that they were making progress. And this White House official said this went on both in, in the field at military headquarters in Kabul, but also up to the White House, up to the President of the United States, that they all knew in the Obama administration that the facts, these stats that they were presenting in public uh, were distorted and not true. And that really brings to mind what happened in Vietnam and that the Pentagon Papers exposed. It's really that same sort of deliberate and concerted and persistent effort to mask what's really going on in Afghanistan. It's oftentimes said that truth is the first casualty in war. Is what you have uncovered and reported on and written about in this book, The Afghanistan Papers, is it, is it any different than what you would expect a government to say during a conflict? And, and could it have been argued that if the government was being completely open about its concerns, it could be counteractive, it could be uh, counteractive to what they're trying to achieve in the country? Yeah, so I, I would argue against that. I think it's, it's not counterproductive that one reason the war dragged on for as long as it did is because the government didn't tell the truth under three presidents, that they kept telling the public that things were going in the right direction. Now, I think most Americans realize, particularly in recent years, that things weren't going well in Afghanistan. If, if you have a war drag on for 20 years, uh, by definition, it's not going very well, especially if it's a war that your side started. So, you know, people weren't stupid. They knew things weren't going well in Afghanistan. But, you know, in public, again, and in Congress and in in open debate during presidential uh, campaigns, there's always this presentation that things are going well and that victory's around the corner. I think that if they had told the truth earlier that their, their strategy was failing, that this was actually an unwinnable war, that they needed to pursue some kind of reconciliation with the Taliban, that they couldn't defeat this insurgency, uh, then the war could have ended years ago. Uh, now, the fear was, I think, this was a war that, as you pointed out at the start, Mitch, that uh, the American public had, had supported in great numbers early on. Uh, this was seen as a war of self-defense after September 11th. It was seen as a just cause by most Americans. Uh, so when you're president or the commander in chief, you know, it's very hard when the public thinks you won this war back in 2002 to admit that suddenly it's not going well and that this war is being lost on your watch. You know, no president wants to admit that, even under any circumstance, but particularly with the war that the American people thought had been, they had ended in victory once. Who wants to admit they've lost that war? And I think that more than anything is the reason why uh, these three presidents and the Pentagon and the State Department couldn't level with the American people because politically they just couldn't bear having to, to take that measure of accountability and responsibility. So you say three presidents, so I'm assuming you mean George Bush, Barack Obama, and then Donald Trump. 
All three presidents all promised to win in Afghanistan. They promised to prevail, all three of them. Uh, ironically, Bush and Trump promised to end the war and promised to pull out all U.S. troops. Neither one did. But all three of those presidents up till uh, you know, last year uh, promised that they would emerge victorious in this war. And particularly under Obama's last years and Trump's administration, they knew this was an unwinnable conflict. The troops were withdrawn during Biden's presidency. That was clear. But Biden's hand certainly was 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 the cards he was playing was certainly dealt to him by what Donald Trump did and his promise to get out of Afghanistan. Does Donald Trump deserve credit for this war finally coming to an end? Uh, That's a good question. Nobody's asked me that one before. Ironically, Trump's not taking too much credit. He's kind of putting the blame on Biden for how things unfolded. But again, this is the irony. Both Obama and Trump had promised to end the war, tried to. Obama had promised to pull out all U.S. troops by the end of his second term. Uh, That didn't happen because he was worried the Afghan government would collapse. Uh, Trump, same thing. He promised to end the war on his watch. But again, his generals told him, if you do that, the Afghan government might not make it. So he kept troops there and kicked the can down the road to Biden. Uh, you know, Biden's, I think, the one president who has told the truth about his intentions from the get-go and did end up pulling the plug on our military involvement, even though things were extraordinarily chaotic. And clearly, the Biden administration wasn't prepared for how quickly the Afghan government would unravel. Uh, but does Trump, I, you know, I guess Trump does deserve some credit. He started to wind things down. But he was so haphazard and all over the place in his strategy and moving forces in and out. It, you know, there's not a whole lot of consistency on his part. Do you think that played a role into the chaos that we saw in the final days in Afghanistan, trying to get out of the Kabul uh, airport? And, and do you think the, the chaos that we witnessed in, in the airport was unavoidable? I don't think it was unavoidable. I think this was a product of, again, this, this original problem we had is we never really fundamentally understood Afghanistan. And even though we've been there 20 years, uh, the U.S. government never really had a good handle on what made that society tick. Uh, they didn't have very good intelligence on what was going on. Uh, they, just, they just didn't get Afghanistan. Uh, the Biden administration thought that the Afghan government had at least several months that it would survive or stand up against the Taliban, if not longer. So the fact that it collapsed as quickly as it did, I mean, it was, it was shocking. It was, I was surprised by how quickly the Taliban was able to sweep through Afghanistan and take over all these provincial capitals and then waltz into Kabul with no resistance. That, that was shocking to watch. But you know, clearly the Biden administration didn't expect this, so was unprepared, even though the military had, the US troops had already pulled out uh, you know, the, the U.S. Embassy was still there. Uh, and of course, we had thousands of Americans and tens of thousands of Afghans who had helped us during the war and had been promised, uh, you know, safe passage to the United States. So, yes, they were unprepared. Uh, they could have been, you know, kept their eye out for this sort of thing. It, it, clearly, they were, they were not ready. You'll remember that Biden was asked back in July uh, could there be another Saigon moment in Afghanistan? And by that, the questioner meant, would we have a repeat of what happened in Vietnam in 1975 when helicopters were evacuating people off the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon? And Biden was very dismissive of that. He said, no, no, that'll never happen. That's not going to happen in Afghanistan. Uh, but of course, it effectively did. I mean, people remember the photos of and the the, the footage of the U.S. military uh, cargo and transport aircrafts taking off at Kabul with with these crowds of Afghans trying to cling to the outside of the plane. And it was, in some ways, the the spectacle was worse than than what happened in Saigon. Again, your book, The Afghanistan Papers, chronicles the story of how the government misled Americans and the perception here about how the war is going. You, You don't think it would be fair to say Joe Biden may have been participating in that by telling people before the withdrawal that he doesn't anticipate uh, an immediate collapse of the government in Afghanistan? Yeah, that's a good question and a fair question. I, I don't think, I think Biden just got it wrong. I don't think he expected this would happen. I think he just, he and his administration didn't understand Afghanistan very well to, to foresee 
the, such a rapid collapse, or at least they didn't take it seriously. I don't think he was intentionally misleading the public about it in his assessments. I think he just got it wrong. But that, that's a difference between what happened under Obama and Trump and Bush. You know, the documentation is very clear on numerous occasions, but also in their public messaging throughout the war, that they were intentionally misleading the public about how things were going. But they were also, frankly, lying about individual events, about things that went wrong. There is one example in the book, which I uncovered from documentation, that uh, the, back in 2007, then Vice President Cheney visited Afghanistan. He spent the night at our military base in Bagram, north of Kabul. Uh, he was supposed to meet with Afghan President Hamid Karzai. The Taliban sent a suicide bomber to, to Bagram, and uh, the suicide bomber set off his, his explosives right outside the front gate, killed a bunch of people, and the Taliban immediately claimed that this was intended to assassinate Cheney. At the time, the US military denied this and scoffed at it and said, no, 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 they didn't know Cheney was there. He was never in danger. They couldn't have possibly been trying to target Cheney. They couldn't have put a plot together that quickly. Uh, but for documents for the book, there were oral history interviews with an army officer in charge of security at the base that day, and who was actually working with the Secret Service to safeguard Cheney's movements. And he said, no, no, the Taliban came very close. They came within 30 minutes of blowing up uh, the suicide bomber outside the front gate, within 30 minutes of when Cheney was supposed to depart, that the bomber just saw the wrong uh, armored SUV caravan heading out the gate, uh, that they knew where Cheney was. So again, this contradiction, you know, this person is essentially saying the public explanation was a lie the Taliban was telling the truth and that Cheney was in real danger. So you see this time and again with individual events uh, throughout the 20 years. Let me give you a, a, an audience question. Can you talk about your personal experiences reporting in Afghanistan and did you have any close calls yourself? No, I was very fortunate, always safe. I mean, certainly there were times in Afghanistan when uh, things were risky. It wasn't you know, you had to be very careful being there, particularly as a reporter. You don't, when you're there independently, uh, you don't have protection from the U.S. military and you're vulnerable. And uh, for 20 years, U.S. news organizations have sent people correspondents there and operated bureaus at, at considerable risk. And many journalists have been killed in Afghanistan, especially Afghan journalists. So that's something always in the back of your mind. Personally, you know, nothing happened to me, no close calls, but, but you're always concerned about it. Uh, just on a personal level, again, the biggest effect on me is, you know, my first trip to the region uh, was in late 2001. And I actually ended up spending most of my time in Pakistan at that point, uh, because that's where Al-Qaeda had already fled to. But, you know, my son uh, was nine months old when I first went over, and now he's a junior in college. And you think back that really the arc of his life uh, you know, I've been covering the war in Afghanistan ever since he was a baby. And, you know, now he's a grown adult. And that's, I mean, it's, I know it sounds silly, perhaps, but it's kind of sobering to think about. Again, and I think you indicated you, you, you were surprised by how quick the Afghan government failed, uh, uh, collapsed. Um, why did it collapse? Why, why did the Afghan military collapse? Well, all really good questions. And, you know, a number of reasons. One, the Afghan government uh, was thoroughly corrupt and didn't have any support or very little support from the population. Many Afghans, of course, don't like the Taliban at all. They don't like the brutal tactics. They don't like uh, the theocracy they want to impose. Uh, but many of them saw the Taliban as the lesser of two evils. The Afghan government uh, was really detested by a large part of the Afghan population that saw the, the leadership in the government as looking out for themselves and trying to enrich themselves instead of looking out for the population. So that's one, one explanation. Uh, but one thing the U.S. government should have known about and did know about was that the Afghan army and the Afghan police forces, which are really a paramilitary police force, uh, that these security forces uh, were really a house of cards. Uh, that the U.S. military had spent over $85 billion to train and equip them over 20 years. But uh, throughout the last two decades, there have been report after report after report internally that the Afghan security forces were kind of a hopeless wreck, that uh, they were mostly illiterate, they couldn't shoot straight, desertion was a huge problem. And again, corruption was 
was the biggest hindrance because all their commanders would pocket money that was supposed to go to their troops. So nobody had any confidence that the Afghan army and police were going to be able to defend the country for very long. So uh, that's something that the Biden administration should have seen coming. Another audience question. Did some of your interviews touch on the reality of profits made by defense contractor? This person says that's always a reason, another reason to stay. Uh, yes, yeah, sort of. I'll give a, a little bit of an indirect answer to that there were some interviews that the inspector general done tried to, again to keep them confidential, but we obtained that uh, with some auditors who worked for the Pentagon and were sent over to Afghanistan during the Obama administration to try and track this question of we're spending you know tens of billions of dollars uh, a year on on defense contracts in Afghanistan to resupply our troops to supply the Afghan army. Uh, to really keep this whole thing going. And they want to know where's all this money going, right? Now, some of it was going to corrupt contractors who uh, were fleecing the U.S. government, both American contractors, but also international ones or Afghan ones. But a large percentage of the money, estimated as high as 40%, was either ending up in the pockets of the Taliban or corrupt Afghan government officials or just criminal syndicates in Afghanistan. And the, the U.S. auditors were shocked at this. And when they presented some of their findings to their counterparts in the Afghan government, the Afghans said, oh, you're actually lowballing it. It's probably much worse than that. So a lot of people were getting rich off this war, not just American contractors, but uh, international ones from Europe and Asia and the Middle East, and, uh, but also the Taliban and, and corrupt officials in Afghanistan. You know, this war was, was padding a lot of pockets. And that's something that the U.S. Never, government never really able was able to curtail. Here's an interesting question. If the United States government knew that the Taliban was sheltered in Pakistan, why did we not pressure Pakistan not to shelter the Taliban? Another very good question, and there, there's some clear answers for this. So in some ways, it, Pakistan had the United States over a barrel. Uh, Pakistan's a nuclear power. So they knew we weren't going to send troops in there. We didn't want to drag them into the war. We didn't want to violate their sovereignty. Uh, but the other thing that most people probably don't recognize is that uh, the United States was highly dependent on Pakistan for our supply routes and air routes into Afghanistan. Afghanistan's a landlocked country. Uh, we can't come in from the West because that's where Iran is. We weren't going to have any access through Iran. Uh, we weren't going to come in very easily through the north because those are some former Russian or Soviet states, and it just is much more convoluted that way. So really, we had to resupply our troops and get all this, all this, you know, food, weapons, ammunition, you name it, through ground routes through Pakistan. And the Pakistani government let us do this, but you know, if they wanted to, they could just choke it off. And sometimes they did. When they would get mad at the Americans, they would close the border crossings. The other thing we depended on Pakistan for was their airspace. So anytime we wanted to send U.S. military aircraft or even civilian aircraft into Afghanistan from the Middle East or the Persian Gulf, just about every time we had to fly over Pakistani airspace. And again, they let us do this, but they knew that gave them great leverage. How does the transition from going in to knock out al-Qaeda and the Taliban turn into and transition into nation building and trying to create Afghanistan as a Western style democracy that we would, we would recognize. Um, how, how does that transition happen? And tell me about the significance of that story and what you're telling with the Afghanistan papers. Yeah. So I think the best way to describe it is in 2001, after the September 11th attacks, there was a rush to war. There was a rush to retaliate against Al-Qaeda. There was a rush to defend our country. There was a rush to eliminate Al-Qaeda as a threat. There was real fear that something like that could happen again, understandably. Uh, but what wasn't really thought out was the aftermath. So within a matter of months, uh, Al-Qaeda was gone from Afghanistan. Its leaders were captured, killed, or had fled to places like Pakistan or Iran. Uh, the Taliban was toppled from power. So suddenly the U.S. military is, is the power stand, left standing in Afghanistan, and it's sort of responsible for what's going on in the country. 
Uh, at that point, Afghanistan was just a real mess. It was a broken country, a devastated country from decades of war, uh, ever since the Soviet invasion of 1979. It was never a wealthy country to begin with, but at that point, there were, there were millions of refugees. There was real fear of a, of a very widespread famine. Uh, there was hardly any electricity or roads that were usable. I mean, it was, it was a wreck. And so understandably, the, the US government under President Bush and our allies in Europe and elsewhere said we have a responsibility to do something. Uh, politically, the problem was when Bush ran for president against Al Gore in 2000, he campaigned against this idea of quote unquote nation building. He was very critical of the Clinton administration for uh, what he called nation building programs in places like the Balkans or Haiti or Somalia, these other uh, fragile or broken societies that we had been engaged in military operations in. And Bush promised he wouldn't do that. So suddenly, within a year of him becoming president, here he is, he sent the US military to Afghanistan, and all of a sudden, his country is sort of responsible for what's going on there. So he knows we need to do something to stabilize the country and help it get on its feet. Yet he's told the American people that he's not gonna do any nation building there. So it was a real tension, again, between what he was saying in public and what was really going on on the ground. And so he wanted to do something to help Afghanistan, but there was a reluctance to do very much that would really be effective because it would he was worried it would be seen as breaking his campaign promise. So under Bush, it was, it was a very haphazard attempt to try and stabilize Afghanistan in the early years, which is when it needed it the most. How about Iraq? Um, are there Iraq papers and in these documents that you were you were reporting on? Do they talk about Iraq? Yeah, very frequently. And again, the the reason they talk about Iraq is people who are involved in the war say that was one of the biggest mistakes that the Bush administration immediately shifted its attention from Afghanistan to planning for the invasion of Iraq. Now, we all knew this, right? We knew that there was a rush to invade Iraq in 2003. Uh, the Bush administration thought it had a, a lasting victory in Afghanistan. So they took their eye off what was going on there. But in the documents, it's really uh, pretty sobering to hear some of the specific stories. I'll, I'll give you one example that one year into the war, uh, Donald Rumsfeld writes a snowflake, one of these memos where he's recounting a trip he took to the White House to meet President Bush in the Oval Office. And Rumsfeld says that he told the president, uh, sir, you know, I've got two generals in town who maybe you want to make time to meet with them. One of them is General Tommy Franks, who's the commander of all U.S. forces in the Middle East, and also the guy who's in charge of the war plans for invading Iraq. The other general is General Dan McNeil, uh, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Well, Bush responds to Rumsfeld and says, well, Tommy Franks, yeah, I want to meet with him so we can talk about Iraq. But he said, but who's General McNeil? And Rumsfeld had to remind the president that, well, that's, that's your top general in Afghanistan. And Bush responds, oh, well, I don't need to meet with him. So here you have the president of the United States, the commander in chief, commander in chief a year into the war, doesn't even know, know the name of his top general there and doesn't want to spare a few minutes to meet with him because he's so focused completely on Iraq. And to me, that sums up more than anything, just the gravity of this inattention they spent on Afghanistan because they were so, frankly, obsessed with going into Iraq. Another audience question. Did the papers reveal that the Pakistani establishment and ISI, Pakistan's intelligence services, knew the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden? No, that's a great question. And there's no indication in there, of, in these documents, that the Pakistanis knew the whereabouts of bin Laden. This is something that's often been debated in public. Uh, there's no evidence bin, has emerged, solid evidence, that they knew that bin Laden was in Abbottabad, Pakistan, near uh, essentially the Pakistanis army's version of their West Point. Uh, but there, there was one interesting interview in there that talked about the Pakistani government support for the Taliban. This was something they always denied in public, but there was a, a long interview with Ambassador Ryan Crocker. He was a two-time ambassador in Afghanistan, but in between he served as the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan. And Crocker's talking in this interview about how he once met with the director of the ISI, which is a Pakistani spy service, a military-run spy service, uh, a guy named Ashfaq Kayani, a, a general. 
And Crocker said he was getting on General Kayani about their support for the Taliban. And normally Pakistani officials would just deny it, right? They would have this plausible deniability. No, no, we don't support the Taliban. Uh, but Crocker said, uh, General Kayani finally looked at him and said, you know, of course we support the Taliban. You know, I'm not going to deny it. What do you expect? We know you Americans are going to leave at some point and we want to maintain our influence with them. Uh, and I was, I was pretty shocked by this. Again, we kind of suspected this all along that uh, the Pakistanis were helping Taliban, the Taliban, but here the director of the ISI uh, admitted it directly to the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, uh, who was, you know, I think he was taken aback too by how blunt they were about it. Did you read anything? Did you find anything concerning Afghanistan and Iran? Uh, not too much, no. There, I don't think that was a big focus of Iran, except that as a regional power, uh, ironically, over time, Iran has not gotten along well with the Taliban. Uh, they, you know, there's uh, differences in religion, in, 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 in factions there between the Shiites in Iran and the Sunnis who run the Taliban. And so, you know, they haven't gotten along well historically. But there wasn't very much in there about, certainly Iran played a role in Afghanistan in recent years, both covertly and overtly. But that wasn't a major focus of the of the Afghanistan papers. Next audience question, can you predict how this plays out over the next six months or five years? And of course, nobody can predict with you know, complete uh, confidence, but w what do you see happening over time? Well, I, you know, despite the fact that we've ended our military involvement, you know, Afghanistan's problems aren't going away, both from a security standpoint, but above, above all the welfare of the population, uh, I think, most Americans still really don't have a good idea of just how uh, devastated this country is. I mean, in recent years, uh, they've had this terrible drought that's really affected a large percentage of the population. Uh, COVID is an enormous problem there because public health is almost non-existent. And to a large degree, the Afghan government was dependent on the United States and other donor nations to uh, prop up their economy. And so now that the United States has pulled out and other countries don't want to recognize the Taliban, that's a real question. What happens to all this, human, not just humanitarian aid, but really the operating funds for the Afghan government had come from overseas. And you know, I can't imagine the, the Biden administration is, is going to want to finance a, a government run by the Taliban. So uh, this country really has some enormous economic challenges. Um, another big problem is uh, the problem of production of opium. Afghanistan's the world's largest producer of opium poppies, uh, which, is, which are used to make heroin. And you know that's a problem that's not gonna go away. So Afghanistan can really still destabilize the region uh, and beyond if, if we aren't careful. And you know we'll just have to see if the Taliban can bring any stability to the country or if things are gonna go back to like they were in the 1990s. Would it be in the United States' interest to continue to be involved economically in Afghanistan so that it's not a, we, of course, the government has collapsed, but that it's not a complete societal collapse? Yes, absolutely. And this, there's no question. I think many Biden administration officials recognize this, that they, they can't afford to pull the plug on humanitarian aid, that not only for moral reasons, but really for the interest of the United States is to try and keep Afghanistan from imploding economically. Uh, so I think they will continue to send aid there through the United Nations and other donor organizations, uh, non-governmental organizations. But, you know, this isn't going to be enough to prop up the country, and this is going to be a real challenge. There's, there's a real dichotomy between trying to help the Afghan people without supporting the Taliban or supporting their government. And that's going to be a fine line the Biden administration is going to have to walk for the foreseeable future. Craig Whitlock, we have about 15 minutes to go, and viewers can still get their questions in through the chat box on YouTube, and we'll get as many questions in as we, we possibly can. I, I want to return to the role of the inspector general. Again, it was the inspector general uh, with concerning Afghanistan that we get this lessons learned report that provides a lot of what you what you write about in the Afghanistan papers. The inspector general, generally speaking, 
is, is a very important role in, in government. Usually each department, sometimes agencies, uh, have an inspector general that investigates corruption, wrongdoing, inefficiency within the government itself. Um, and that's what this report comes from, lessons learned. Uh, but, and for full disclosure, you and I had talked previously where I had you on my radio program, and I learned through that conversation that the inspector general of Afghanistan also wasn't entirely truthful with the public concerning all of this. Well, so this is an interesting uh, operation. It gets in the weeds a little bit of how the federal government operates, but the special inspector general for Afghanistan, uh, it's a guy named John Sopko, and he runs a pretty big operation with hundreds of employees whose their main mission is to investigate fraud, waste, and abuse in the war zone. And he's, he's, appointed by Congress as opposed to the executive branch. So he, he can have a lot of independence. And his reputation was that he was a very aggressive inspector general in investigating waste in the war zone, that he would uh, testify frequently before Congress. He gave tons of interviews in the news media and, and really uh, played it up, what his role. He, he was very much in the public eye. Uh, but this Lessons Learned reports that his, his agency did uh, they did produce reports that accurately pinpointed all these mistakes made in Afghanistan over the years with U.S. government operations, but they withheld uh, the substance of these hundreds of interviews. So the reports were really dry and watered down and written in kind of government bureaucratic prose, but all these shocking comments that generals and diplomats and aid workers had made in these interviews, uh, they kept out of the reports. And, you know, that's one thing if he's just sort of watering down his own reports. But, you know, everything he did is public information under the law. None of this stuff was classified. So when the Washington Post came knocking on the door saying, we want to see those interviews that uh, his agency had spent millions of dollars on this program, uh, you know, that belongs to the public. And the public deserves to know what these people who were in charge of the war were saying about all the mistakes they made. Uh, and again, this took three years in court for the Washington Post to file two lawsuits under the, under the Freedom of Information Act, and the inspector general resisted every step of the way to disclose this stuff. Now, in his defense, his argument is that, well, we needed to keep these interviews confidential because these people might not speak to us again if they thought their, their comments, their very frank admissions of failure might be made public. Uh, but, you know, our response was it, it doesn't matter what your preference is, that this material is all public. It belongs to the American people. Uh, it's not your personal bureaucratic mission here. You know, if, if people in government, hundreds of people have admitted that the war was a failure, all these mistakes were made, the, the public is entitled to know that, is entitled to know exactly what those people said. And that was our argument in court. As you can see, I still feel very strongly about that. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the public could have learned this years ago if the inspector general hadn't fought us at every at every turn to keep it all secret. Do you think if we learned this years ago, we may have ended the war sooner? I think there would have been a lot more public pressure on Obama and Trump and then Biden if it got to that to end things quicker. Just when you have generals saying we didn't have a strategy or we we didn't know what we were doing in Afghanistan or this was an unwinnable war, or why were all these, you know, did all these troops die in vain? These are some of the comments in the Afghanistan papers. They're so uh, shocking in some regards. If people had known about that back in 2015 or 2016, when the inspector general was doing these interviews, I think it would have, you know, been huge news back then. And the public would have really turned much more strongly against the war. And there would have been a lot more pressure to end it. Now, I mean, we can't know for sure, but it, it certainly wouldn't have helped perpetuate the war. It would have been the opposite. The you know, public opinion was already you know, growing against the war. There were a lot of people questioning what we were doing there. But you know, it, it's hard to keep fighting a war when you have general after general or ambassadors or White House officials admitting that it's unwinnable and that you know, the whole thing was, had been a flop. Another audience question. Did the United States consider keeping the Bagram Air Force Base permanently the way it keeps Diego Garcia or Guantanamo Bay? And if yes, how much commitment in terms of troops would have been needed? Well, that would have been so two things with that. They would have needed permission 
from the Afghan government. And, you know, this was not something that was forthcoming initially. Under, the, under former President Hamid Karzai, there was a lot of tension between the Afghan government and the Obama administration about how long we could keep troops there. Uh, when the new president, Ashraf Khani, came into power, he probably would have let us stay as long as we wanted. Uh, but this was always a question, you know, the Afghan government is sovereign. We can't stay indefinitely unless they agree to it. Uh, but to stay at Bagram and keep that air base, which had originally been built by the Russians back probably in the 70s or 60s, uh, we would have had to have kept thousands of U.S. troops in Afghanistan indefinitely, both to operate the airfield, but also for force protection to defend our own troops. So that would have been a way to, you know, maintain U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan, you know, indefinitely. And this, you know, whether you are favorite or not, no question that, you know, the insurgency would have seen this as a rallying cry. You know, we have to get the foreign invaders out. And our presence there over the long term was backfiring in that regard. How really are we done, militarily speaking, with Afghanistan? Do we have military bases or in the region? Uh, we do, not super close. So, you know, to the east in Pakistan, we don't have any bases. The Pakistanis won't let us have U.S. troops here. Uh, to the west in Iran, same thing. They're never going to let U.S. troops be there. Uh, to the north in some of these former Soviet satellite countries like Uzbekistan uh, or Tajikistan, we've had some interactions with in the past, early on in the war, where they let us have U.S. troops here. But, you know, the Biden administration approached them about moving U.S. Uh, Air Force assets there and, and no takers. So really, most of the U.S. military power in the region comes from the Persian Gulf. We have a number of large bases in countries like the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and Kuwait and to a lesser degree in Saudi Arabia. Now, you know, that's still several hours of flight time to Afghanistan. So it, it takes a while to get you know, whether it's fighter jets or drones to travel that distance. So, yes, we're still going to have military involvement over Afghanistan uh, with, with, with aircraft. Uh, you know, for the moment, the Biden administration has said we're not going to have U.S. military troops on the ground. But no question, we're still going to be flying missions over Afghanistan. The Taliban, frankly, can't do anything about that because they lack any air defenses of their own. Does that get into any legal complications? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. And the original authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan was approved by Congress back in 2001 in response to the September 11th attacks. That has not been revoked by Congress. So even though we've pulled U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, and even though the Taliban is now in control of the government there, uh, that authorization from Congress still exists. So unless Congress revokes that legally, the Biden administration can still take military action in Afghanistan under under that law. And almost anywhere else too, right? I mean, the AUMF is pretty broad. Well, I, I don't want to say anywhere else, but it's broad. It says any forces associated or affiliated with Al-Qaeda are legitimate targets. Now, you know, depending on how you define that, whether it's the Taliban, a lot of people would define them. But, you know, other countries, it's certainly been stretched uh, to a large degree to any uh, jihadist groups or radi Islamic radicals that are sympathetic or affiliated with Al-Qaeda somehow. So it's certainly been used as justification for military operations in North Africa and other in the Middle East and other parts. And, and this is something that one of our own local lawmakers, Democratic Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland, has always she was the one no vote against it when it was when it first came up, something she's been trying to repeal ever since. She's got a lot more traction. Uh, and a lot more support in making that happen than 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 she did before. Um, talk to me, Craig Whitlock, about the military equipment that has been left behind in Afghanistan. How big of a deal do you think that is? You know, that, Mitch, that's, that's a good question. That's gotten a lot of attention because there's been a lot of uh, footage of the Taliban parading around in night vision goggles and and uniforms that were procured by the U.S. military, uh, driving around Humvees or MRAPs, which are these armored vehicles. Uh, you know, there's no question there's a lot of that. I don't think it's it's the degree to which that it's going to uh, make any sort of difference in a military balance. The problem was we had 
equipped the the Afghan army and police for years. So all the ammunition, all the rifles, all the guns, all the weaponry uh, were supplied by the United States. And so anything that was in the Afghan army or Afghan police's hands, you know, that's been turned over to the Taliban. And I don't want to minimize that, what a big deal that is. So the Taliban is very well armed at this point. But in terms of sophisticated weaponry, like aircraft or helicopters or, or things like this or drones that that are of substantive size, uh, you know, I'm not holding my breath that the Taliban's going to be able to operate any of that. And frankly, the U.S. military disabled or withdrew most of that equipment uh, before they pulled U.S. forces out by the end of July. So at that point, the U.S. military had really pulled out most of the sensitive military equipment, the high-tech stuff had been withdrawn from Afghanistan before the Taliban took over. So what we see the Taliban with now, I, again, I don't want to downplay uh, the visual pain involved in that and seeing the Taliban well-equipped, but you know, this is stuff that the average Afghan foot soldier or police officer might be using. And, you know, I don't think it's going to bring any real threat to, to U.S. military presence in the region. Do you think the United States will still have an intelligence presence, CIA presence in Afghanistan? Or, or do you think, and maybe both of these can be true, the United States is now turning its attention away from Afghanistan to other parts of the world, perhaps Asia, remember during the Obama era, the, the pivot to Asia. Um, what about intelligence services? Do you think they're still going to be looking into Afghanistan after this? Well, I think the Biden administration and the CIA would like to pivot to Asia. They see the more important strategic interests in the United States are in Asia because of China's presence, but also other countries like North Korea or Russia, and that Afghanistan is, is not a long-term strategic interest of the United States. That said, the CIA and other intelligence agencies have to pay attention to Afghanistan because there's real concern about the Taliban being in power and whether they'll let al-Qaeda or other uh, terrorist groups regroup there. So they can't afford to take their eye off Afghanistan. Now, how do they do that? Uh, the CIA had, had a pretty entrenched presence in Afghanistan. People didn't see it, but they had a lot of people there. They had a very close relationship with the Afghan intelligence service. They really trained and equipped them as well. And they were a pretty powerful network within Afghanistan. That's all, for the most part, gone up in smoke. Uh, so we don't, you know, at the moment, we probably don't have many CIA officers, Americans on the ground. If they did, they'd be covert. Uh, but what they would be trying to do is uh, recruit Afghan sources or uh, assets in Afghanistan to report to them what's going on in terms of human intelligence. Uh, then, of course, the United States has vast capabilities in terms of intercepting electronics intelligence, signals intelligence, things like that through the National Security Agency. So, I mean, we're still going to be paying very close attention to Afghanistan. We just, again, won't have our own people on the ground to the same degree we did before for the last 20 years. Craig Whitlock, do you ever see yourself, somebody who has been covering this war for two decades now, ever going back to Afghanistan? Sure. And, you know, to kind of take away attention from me, I have a lot of admiration for other journalists who have covered the war in person year after year after year. Uh, we have a reporter at The Washington Post named Pamela Constable. She was our bureau chief in South Asia when the Taliban was in power. Uh, she was a female journalist who went to Afghanistan quite frequently when the Taliban was in charge, was a very courageous reporter. And she more or less has covered the war for the last 20 years. Uh, while living in Afghanistan for years at a time. She's, I mean, this is how long the war has gone on. She's semi-retired at this point, but she went back to help cover the U.S. withdrawal this past summer. So this is a person who dedicated a large portion of their career to covering not just the war, but the Afghan people. Uh, there are other reporters for the BBC, like Lise Doucette, who's their chief international correspondent, who's covered Afghanistan ever since uh, the Soviet invasion in 1979. She was there in the 80s, and she's still there today. So there's a lot of brave journalists, including a, a lot of female journalists, which is interesting given the Taliban's treatment of women who have who have just you know put themselves in harm's way, but really thought it was important their mission to tell the story of what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, so the world can bear witness to what's going on. I just you know I take off my hat to those people. I'm I'm a guy who's been to Afghanistan a fair bit, but I've lived elsewhere in the world or in the United States. I haven't 
lived for years on end in Afghanistan, like a lot of American journalists have. Craig Whitlock is an investigative reporter with The Washington Post and the author of the new book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Thank you, sir, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Mitch, and thanks to everybody who tuned in. There's some really terrific questions and, and happy to answer them and really enjoyed it. We enjoyed it as well. We do want to remind everyone that Craig's book is available online and also at your local bookstore. And of course, we want to thank you all for viewing. I'm Mitch Shuzerich, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.